All right, so technically we're live on YouTube right now. We're going to give a couple minutes here for people to jump in. Okay. I was just throwing the link up. Bobby's putting the link uh, onto the okay. Facebooks. <laughs> there we go. I've got to pause that. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> there we go. Every week we have some kind of technical difficulty as we get our way going, but okay. we'll give people a moment here. Okay, I think I've got the link up. Okay. I mean, yeah. All right, <laughs> Bobby, do you want to introduce oh. our uh, special edition of the After oh, Party this week? This is a very, very special edition of After Party. So we are joined by Mita Adesanya and David Ramage and Larissa Moore and Gabe Chen for a conversation to center and amplify Black voices. And we're so grateful to our friends for joining us tonight. Jared, do you wanna talk a little bit more about our movement towards this decision? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the after party is sort of this regular piece that we've been doing on YouTube to discuss the weekend, have a chance for us to get together. Uh, but this certainly did not feel like the week to just continue as normal. Uh, so many things changing in the world, so many important conversations being happen, uh, happening. And then particularly today uh, with the blackout across social media, it felt really important that we leaned into that in terms of um, bringing those voices to the front that need to be listened to and need to be heard. Because at Commons, we are primarily a white majority community, um, more diverse probably than a lot of communities in Calgary. But the majority of people that are in our pews or not in our pews right now, right now we're all online, but in our community, you know, look like myself and you. And so what we wanted to do tonight was to have an opportunity to invite um, some of the really important leaders and voices in our community to share about what's happening. And I think what's interesting is uh, the, the range of diversity that's, that's represented here tonight, um, not just in skin color and melanin, but in background, in perspective. I mean, it's a really interesting group of people that we've uh, been able to pull together. And I think it's gonna be a really helpful conversation. Bobby and I are gonna do our best to sort of ask some questions and then be quiet and listen. Um, and I think it's gonna be fun. Are you gonna introduce everyone who's on the panel a little bit? Yeah, why don't we let them introduce sure. themselves? Um, I just said your name, but it would be great to uh, hear from each of you. I, what might be helpful just because it's Zoom is I'll, I'll say, hey, Dave, can you introduce yourself? And then uh, Dave will introduce himself and just feel free to like a sentence or two is great for anyone watching. So Dave. Can you introduce yourself? <laughs> oh, my name is Dave Ramage. Happy oh, to try to unmute there. Are you muted? Can you hear me? I'm unmuted. There we go. We can hear you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay, folks, I'm Dave Ramage. Are we going to have... Unmute there. Oh, man. Sorry, Dave. This is We're going to have to try one thing here. We almost need there we go. Can okay. we hear you now? How's... Can you hear me? Yeah. Perfect. Sorry about that. <laughs> Alrighty, I'm Dave Ramage. I'm happy to be a part of the panel tonight. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> We're going to get into more details of like your context and who you are and what you bring. So this is great. Um, uh, Larissa. Hello, everyone. My name is Larissa Moore. I attend Commons and I also work there uh, as a youth pastor. Um, and I'm also very excited to be part of this panel. 
Uh, also, Larissa is going to be joining us as a full-time intern in the fall. We're pretty excited about that. <laughs> so she'll be moving from a part-time role into a full-time role at the church. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. That's really great. And Mita? Hi, my name is Mita Adesanya. I have been a part of the Commons community for, pro I would say, since 2015. Something like that. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I'm pleased to be here with you guys. Spend my lovely post-work Tuesday with you. Good. And we have Gabe. Hello, uh, Gabriel Chen. I've been part of the Commons community since I think about 2015 as well. So uh, love being uh, part of that, uh, volunteering as well. And so I am uh, very honored to be here as an ally tonight. Very cool. So good. So the question I want to start with for Larissa and Dave and Mita is this one, which is what does your blackness mean to you? So let's start with Mita. Um, when I saw kind of your cliff notes for this, I saw that question. And honestly, it's really hard not to smile <laughs> when I think about it. Um, I think the, the simplest way to describe my blackness is to describe it as my constant companion. Um, it's something that reminds me of who I am, where I'm from, connects me to a community of people all over the world, regardless of um, what we may have gone through. Um, it feels spiritual to be honest, it feels like a family. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the core reasons why we are able to feel the pain of other, um, whether they're in a different country or a different context. There is something so shared about having that additional melanin um, that makes it, it, it makes life full. Yeah, I think that would be how I would put it. Oh, thank you. Uh, Dave, what does your blackness mean to you? So similar to Mita, when I saw the footnotes of the conversation today, that was a very striking point for myself. I think the best way to describe it, Mita somewhat touched on it as well, is like there's a level of kinship that comes with your blackness. With your blackness, there's just this collective badge or collective uniform that you all wear together which is your melanin is your skin and it's just amazing to have that um, in terms of it though as well it, it does bring other pieces to it as well it does bring these conversations it does mean that I have to be a panelist it's a you know conversation like this because of the melanin in and of itself and again going back to that just that notion of kinship there's a level of family that comes with it as well and when you have that familial peace there's challenges too so i love it it's all i know and it's all that i walk because again blackness is my life larissa what does your blackness mean to you yeah same game <laughs> it's like uh well it's the only thing i've ever known i don't mm -hmm. have any other identity really so I guess it feels the way that my life generally feels. But um, I think we all 
had that point down, the connectedness part, um, I immediately thought of how when you're like walking down the street, it's implied when you walk past another Black person, there's either like a, a head nod or either it's down or up. There's a certain level of eye contact where you're just like, yeah, we're all we're all in Calgary and we're both Black right now. <laughs> That's <laughs> enough of a connection to have. Um, but uh, the next, the next thing that I thought of was right. Like now I, I had to like kind of grow into my pride around being black. Um, I think just because I, I grew up in Calgary uh, and I grew up in the Southwest and I went to a French immersion school, all of my friends, all of my peers, all of my classmates were white. Um, and it was as a kid, obviously you don't like being the only the odd one out, you don't like being different. Um, and so I've kind of had to learn and grow into that sense of pride. Um, and that came a lot from my parents' culture. Um, both of them are Rwandan and I take a lot of pride in that. It's an amazing culture. It is so supportive, it's communal, it's, we all rely on one another every whether or not I have like 500 different uncles that I've never met and it's the most beautiful thing ever and I that's what I'm proud of I'm proud of how held we are together in that connectedness yeah thank you so Gabe I haven't left you out. I want to ask you, what does allyship mean to you as you engage in anti-racist work as an Asian? It would be really great to hear from you. So my parents immigrated to Canada from Taiwan. I was born and raised in Halifax, which is the traditional territory of the Mi'kmaq people. And when I was younger, I would think of racism mostly as something just between white people and black people. Um, I thought my ancestors didn't have anything to do with it. And as I got older, I started to think that it was my responsibility as a Canadian and as a Christian to not be racist because it wasn't nice. And those are, of course, considered core values in those circles. And as I matured, I realized it wasn't enough to be nice because niceness never solves racism. It actually makes it worse hmm. because it undermines the dignity of the victim and it makes excuses for the cruelty of racist behavior. So I realized that I needed to be an ally. So not just somebody who has black friends and is nice to them, but is actively visibly standing up for them and with them because they need it. Being profiled in stores, sexually harassed, singled out by police, disciplined in school, or bullied at work are all things that black people have to face on a constant basis. And it's a terrible, exhausting burden to have to carry. Our black friends and colleagues needed to know they're not alone. They need to know that they're in, we're in their corner. That's what I want them to know from me, that I'm listening when they tell me what they need and publicly and loudly affirming their humanity and their rights to live with safety and dignity. Being individually nice to minorities and thinking racism isn't is bad doesn't make it any less real and unfortunately, as we've seen, even deadly. Thank you so much, Gabe.
So this question takes me just a little bit to get to, so bear with me. But in the spirit of a tweet that I saw today uh, by Propaganda, the hip hop artist who posted on Twitter to the his he called them the newbies the 4000 newbies to his feed he said welcome here's 10 things i am in addition to a black voice so i wonder if we could go around and hear these other parts of your life that you get really excited about so for example propaganda said he's ambidextrous lactose intolerant a hashtag girl dad, a son of a war vet turned Black Panther, a California native, those kinds of things. So I would love to hear your in addition points to your Blackness, if you will. So let's go with Larissa. I also am a recovered lactose. <laughs> I grew out of it as a child, so pretty cool um <laughs> i'm a i'm a student i am a christian i'm a sister and a daughter i think i'm a really good friend um and a really good listener um an athlete a huge lover of arts and music and photography um I'm a dancer, not professionally, but I'll dance to, to anything, <laughs> Any, anything. <laughs> um, and a, I'm a first generation Canadian, uh, which implies a lot of things. And I'm a lifelong learner. I love to learn things constantly, constantly trying to learn things. Thank you, so good. Dave. <laughs> Can we hear your in addition points? <laughs> You're just giggling. I love that about you. <laughs> off, I'm a laugher, and everyone knows. <laughs> yes, I have a good laugh. <laughs> I love the giggle. Um, also, secondly, and very important to me, is I'm an uncle, and that's a badge they wear very proudly. Uh, I'm a student. Uh, I'm also an advocate um, for people. I'm a Christian as well, and that's something I'm proud of. I'm shy but I'm very loud at the same time. I'm, ex I'm expressive, but then I'm like awkwardly introverted. It's, there's so many different pieces to me, right? Because that's who I am. I'm, I'm a cook. I love to eat too. <laughs> and again, there's that Google coming out. Just there's so many pieces, right? Yeah, so good. Mita, let's hear your in addition pieces. I am a sister um, I am Nigerian, which makes me very happy and very proud and boastful and makes me feel better than all other African people. Um, <laughs> I am a former resident of Brunei, the United Kingdom, the United States. I am a recent this is my new hobby, flower arranging. So that's my new thing. Um, I am a communications professional. I am someone who loves to make people laugh. I'm a lover of music. I, I'm, I'm a softie, I think, is an accurate description of myself. But I will fight you. 
<laughs> so there's that too. With words, that's my preferred weapon of choice. <laughs> I can't believe Mita didn't even mention Arsenal in that introduction. Um, I'm trying to forget that that's a thing <laughs> right now because I can't imagine dealing with all of this and also supporting a losing team in two weeks. So all right. <laughs> I'm just trying to put that part of my identity in the back burner. But <laughs> Fair enough. Again, I won't be able to. <laughs> so the way that we shaped much of the conversation, although we're ready for it to go in any direction that it needs to go in is I checked in with our panelists and asked them what was sort of top of mind and like heaviest of heart uh, in the last number of days. And they all gave me some words around that. So I formed a few questions. We're going to go around. I'll ask the question around the themes that you provided for me. We'll have opportunities for everyone to respond. Uh, but again, feel free to like take whatever I put here and take it in whatever direction you want or um, any of that. And if you, if you want to jump in when somebody's answering, just give us a little wave. I'll pay attention and I'll, uh, I'll give you the screen there as well. So right. as, um, we want to sit back, but we yeah. want to have you guys interact as much as we can. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to start with Mita. Mita, I would love to hear you talk more about this phrase that you used, which is, oh man, I'm feeling emotional already, you guys. <laughs> so uh, this phrase that you used, um, iceberg of black pain that you identified. Can you tell us more about what that means and what you're thinking about in this moment when it comes to um, this iceberg of black pain? I think when I think about that, I think about the fact that we're in a pandemic, we're watching our brothers and sisters dying and we still have to go to work every day. You don't get to complain about a lot of the things that you're dealing with and that one's just like a daily emotional one. There are other things that are systemic, but we feel are so hard to prove. How do I convince someone that the reason why that person decided to go to the other side of the street from a person is because they're black? Like, how do you, I can say that to you? What does that mean to you? How do I convince you that the reason why I may be at this position in my workplace is because I haven't been afforded certain opportunities and certain doors haven't been opened to me as a black person. I think the fact that we have to shed blood and lose life to elicit any kind of empathy, like that's, that's the, the deaths are the tip of the iceberg. The deaths are the tip of the iceberg. And even then, even after the blood is spilled, we don't get the same backing that other people do inherently. There are people in workplaces whose workplaces won't even affirm that Black Lives Matter. I don't know any other group that who has a question mark 
after their value in that same way where you have a movement that is about the quality of your life or anything tragic. I just can't think of any tragedy that takes place where people don't just go, man, I'm so sorry. We were so wrong when presented with the evidence. And so I think the biggest, that, that part beneath the surface is all the shrinking and all the things that we have to suppress to make it through a single day. All the stories that we have to, that we tell that people make excuses for. Oh, someone called me the N-word on the train. Oh, maybe he's just crazy. Oh, someone followed me in a store. Oh, were you holding something? Like there's always a question and there's, with that, it's like there's this pain that you can't prove that you have to endure each day. And the devastating, I think one of the things that kind of having to answer that question of you made me think is like, yeah, fine. Like we can see the killings, we can see these things that happen, but we know about lots of other things that kill people slowly. <laughs> we know about a ton of them. And most of them are things that we see throughout the black community. We see the way environmental racism kills us. We see the way food deserts kill us. We see the way a lack of resources in our home countries and home continents because of the isolation and the pillaging that has taken place still kills us. Um, it's, and then you have to balance that. And so I'm talking a lot, but you have to balance that then with the perception that is had of us. You never wanna be that person who's always complaining about race things, always talking about race things. But what if race things are your life? <laughs> like one great point that David made is most people who are white that speak publicly are doing public speaking because they like it and it's what they want to do. No civil rights activist, not MLK, not Fred Hampton, wanted to be a civil rights activist. MLK wanted to be a preacher. Fred Hampton wanted to be a baseball player. We are by necessity spokespeople and representatives of our people. And that too is burdensome, no matter how proud you are. We are by necessity spokespeople for our people when we go to the workplace, because if you screw up as a black person, they might not hire another black person again. And these are just some of the things that weigh every day, whether we speak about them and whether we don't. So that was kind of what I, what I was speaking to in that point where like, we're protesting and there's so much anger, but like we, there's, there's so much more to protest about. There's so much more to protest about. Yeah. Uh, does any, can you see a hand? <laughs> does anybody wanna jump in on uh, anything Mita said? Thank you, Mita. I got, um... One of the points that I mentioned was just like this general exhaustion that I've been feeling over the last week or so. 
Um, and it's like, it's an exhaustion, but it's just like, it's compounded this week, obviously, because these, we know that police brutality, that Black Lives Matter, that's been a thing that's been around for centuries. Like, we know that this is an issue. We do, because we've experienced it. And, um, and then just, so living with that constantly, and then seeing it in the last week or so, being everywhere that you like as soon as you open your phone it's going it's going to show up um it's just like it's just like you're like being like beaten down constantly like hey do you remember that this is do you remember that this is happening it's still happening it's going to keep happening and i don't want to be really pessimistic about it um but i think that part of the exhaustion is knowing that this has been happening for such a long time um, that everybody's talking about it right now and the likelihood that in a few months from now, no one's going to be talking about it and it's still going to be going on um, because George Floyd isn't the first black man who's died at the hands of a cop. There are dozens and there are even more women who have. Um, and I think that it's just, it's like you're just tired of being angry and you don't want to come off as angry. I think that's what you were saying. Like when you said that, me I was like, the first words I came to my head was like, oh, you don't want to be like the angry black girl in a room that's just like screaming and clapping your hands and getting all passionate and riled up about something. Like you can't be that for everybody else's sake because it makes other people uncomfortable. But like, holy crap, I want to, like, I want to, scream at people constantly about it and you can't because it's not it like feeds their stereotype that they may already have of you um so yeah just like just general exhaustion over it and having to wake up and choose to choose how to feel about things i'm like okay Am I angry today? Am I sad today? Am I tired? Am I numb? Am I gonna pretend like it's not happening? Am I gonna address everything that's happening? Like you just have to go through a million different emotions and it changes hour by hour and day by day. And it's, you don't wanna, I just don't like, I, I feel bad coming off as this person to friends or to employers. And sometimes it feels like the only safe place to talk about it is with my family or with other black people um, because other black people don't get tired of talking about it and don't feel uncomfortable about it. So it feels, it feels safe there, but that's, that's not fair. It's almost impossible to do in Calgary. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I feel you on that exhaustion part. Yeah. I'm pretty exhausted myself, to be really frank. I'm really exhausted this last week. And even just before that as well, just the other, the two others that occurred right before George Floyd, it was just, like, this is just so much compounding on one another. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And then part of me feels selfish in saying this, but like, who's reaching out to me to say, you know, there's a pat on the back for educating uh, you know, a lot of your friends were messaging you or, you know, Dave, thanks a lot for, you know, having, you know, full-fledged conversations with folks 
15, 16 times mm-hmm. in a 15, 16 hour period. And knowing that this conversation has been literally clockwork, but it's been clockwork for 15 or 16 years for us as well. And it's just, it's non, it's nonstop. But then you have to put on this, this face, like Larissa was saying, also at the same time, our voice is completely drowned out because we can't be angry. We can't be angry whatsoever. And then it completely drowns out what we have to say, because when we say this is enough, this is too much. It's like, well, other people get shot. Other people get killed. Other people get murdered by police. And it's like, well, no, you're not really listening. And I think that's the, that's one of the biggest issues that I'm having with this is that it feels like for the first time people are genuinely listening, but at the same time, it also feels like I really hope in a few weeks or in a few months, people don't stop listening. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to move us to uh, one of the questions I have for you, Dave, uh, which actually is about some of the things that you're mentioning. Um, Your Instagram (laughs) has always been like such an illuminating and um, helpful space for me personally. But you did this thing in the last couple of days, uh, a thread about inconvenient truths, you called them. Uh-huh. And you were underscoring, you know, your point about um, like your language was normal, like black people are normal. Um, and I wonder if you could just walk us through or just mention a couple of your, you know, inconvenient truths that you had named in your story and like kind of why those personally resonated with you yeah most definitely thank you bobby i love my story i love throwing stuff onto it for sure also your nephews i never get tired of them (laughs) i am such a fan of those boys i love them i've never even met them (laughs) i hate seeing their doorbell so much right now (laughs) so um just a little back why I posted that um I was quite exhausted just with everything I was seeing on social media so I just posted probably 20 or 30 really positive pictures that I had of just other people in my life who are supportive whether they're black people family just events memories good times just to change social media a little bit just to say hey this is what I like this is what's positive to me I went to bed and woke up again and I was like oh my gosh this is just compounding so I kind of got angry and I was like, I have to say something about this. So what I decided to do was, is I made a post. And again, I was born and raised in Calgary, uh, Peter Lougheed. Like I am as Calgarian <laughs> as the- I think when you look at me though, people don't necessarily think that they often, you know, often I'm asked, well, where are you from? Okay. Well, Calgary, well, where? Well, I think Peter Lai is like 32nd half. Like if you want to be really specific about it, but I started to get a little bothered by it. So then what I did was I just made this post with some inconvenient truths about Canada. Yes. You know, people who are against Black Lives Matter as a movement or against even our panel in general will say, well, this is Canada. I'll say, okay, well, you're right. It's not the United States. We're not South Africa. This is Canada. An inconvenient truth about Canada is, is that we don't celebrate blackness we don't celebrate black heroes we don't celebrate black heroines and what i did was i put forward john ware john ware helped start the cattle industry in southern alberta he brought the the first cattle to the province 
we are so big about Alberta beef. We don't celebrate John Ram. And, you know, there's other inconvenient truths as well in terms of talking about just racism as a whole in our society. We don't necessarily address the fact that Canada had slaves. That's something that we just think that isn't a thing. There's four slave cemeteries in our country. We don't necessarily talk about that. That's not taught to us. That's just, oh, that's it. I'm sure there's people now who are like, oh, that's news to me. And this is something you can go search yourself. Further to that, the KKK, Ku Klux Klan, had a very thriving membership in Edmonton. That's not something that we necessarily talk about. But again, this is something that's just an inconvenient truth. And it's something that as Canadians, we often think, well, we're Canadians, we're great. And it's like this like angel narrative we need to like just get rid of. Like, but we need to get past that. So it's just something that was just really bothering me. And then to the normal to the normalcy piece. All of us sitting here are normal people. I mean, I have nephews and nieces and they mean the world to me. I have goals in my life. I have aspirations. I have good friends. I have a partner. I have so many things in my life that just mean the world to me. And I know every person who's watching now has the same thing too. Just because I have coarse hair and just because my skin's darker doesn't mean I don't have aspirations and I'm not a normal person. George Floyd was a normal person. Right? Like we, we often forget that. Can I jump in? I think mm-hmm. one of the things that's really interesting about what you're saying, Dave, is um, what I hear a lot when it comes to Canada, our particular context here, is people with two narratives. Either, um, oh, it's Canada, we don't have racism or we're nice here, or Canada is no different than the United States. And I'm not saying Canada's better than the United States, but Canada has a different story with racism than the United States does. And I think one of the things that if we're going to honestly deal with things in Canada, we have to deal with our issues, not with American issues. Like we have to deal with what's, what has happened and what is happening here in Canada. And I wonder if you or anyone else wants to speak to that a little bit is how do we, um, how do we own our story? Not this, and I think this is important. It's not a generic story of racism. We have to own the particular story of racism here in Calgary, in Canada, in our lives, in my life, all of us. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to speak to that or, or where we start with those types of things, because it feels to me like either leaning into the American story or pushing away from it. Both of them feel like a way of distancing ourselves from our particular experience in Canada. Mm-hmm. With all due respect, Jeremy, I think the best way to do it, instead of leaning in or pushing away from it, we can just stand still, recognize the American story for what it is, then also realize our fear planted in Canada to say, hey, let's address this story in front of us, just face, face forward. Yeah. So I think in terms of Canadian racism, the first thing to do is to listen. So when a Black voice is telling you, hey, X, Y, Z, it's not, oh, no, you are the angry yeah. black woman it's no i not only hear you but i recognize that maybe i have a fault or maybe there is something that i could address cool i think that's a good first place to start yeah yeah um i think i can add to that um as there was a very interesting article floating around today um by rex murphy <laughs> I don't know if anybody had a chance to read that. Unfortunately. Um, Yeah. And I think this idea that 
if no one is dying, is it racist? <laughs> like, no one is dead. So can it be racism is so unbelievably toxic. If I told you I have to deal with, on average, one incident of overt racism per year, you shouldn't be like, oh, one. Right. <laughs> There's should be, there should be an acceptance and an understanding that the actual threshold for any kind of racism should be zero. You shouldn't give yourself a pat on the back for having a nicer kind of racism, a lighter kind of racism than another place does. Like that's completely absurd. And I think that is the Canadian problem. It's look at us, aren't we so nice? Aren't we so kind? Well, I can tell you what that kindness does in my life. That kindness has meant that every single time I've faced overt racism, no one around me has stood up for me in any way because they're so nice and so polite that they have to back away and mind their business, right? There's certain kinds of overt racism I've experienced in Canada that I would never have experienced in my time in the US because somebody would have punched somebody if it happened. And not that I'm advocating that, but I think there's something to be said about how we frame and define racism in a way that always gives us the comfort that, oh, we're not that. That's what we see. The reason why we draw that, those, these parallels between Canada and the US is because we see those same, it's that same core behavior. As long as, it's, as long as I'm not behaving in the way that I believe racism manifests, then I'm not participating in racism. I'm not racist. And I think that just needs to be dropped. The idea that you can look somebody else in the eye and they can tell you their experience and then you can be like, nope, that's not true. We don't do that for any other thing. No one says, I stubbed my toe I'm, and is weeping at you. And you're like, oh, you didn't stub your toe. That was a ghost. Like, <laughs> you don't say that to anybody else under any other circumstances. And I, I think I'm tired of explaining my humanity and like having to have the most heart-wrenching story to be given the most basic empathy. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. I applaud Dave, David, I applaud you. And I love being your communion buddy, but I'm not having, I don't have those conversations. Hmm. Miss me with that. If you're not rolling, we're not rolling. I'm not doing it. It's tiring. And I'm, and I'm trying to have a full life. Believe it or not, this racism stuff, like it's a side gig for me. I'm trying to live <laughs> That's my main hustle. So if you're not about it, then get out of my way. <laughs> get out of my way. And that's just, my filter is broken hmm. because it has to work everywhere. My filter has to be in place at church. It has to play, be in place at work. It has to be in place online. Like eventually it breaks. You get frustrated because it's a regular human folk. <laughs> so. Can I just be quick to yeah. that? Mita, shoutouts to, because you're my communion buddy. And it's always fantastic when we're on Eucharistic Station 1. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Mita, you touched on something that I just want to express really quick, is that when, you know, you express something and then someone says something back to you, the worst part, I think, about 
I guess the the Black Canadian experience is because of our niceness and because of our our you know social norm that we're always polite as Canadians. When you say something back, you're going against this Canadian norm as well. Mm-hmm. So not even the fact are you addressing racism, if it's not racist in the eyes of the other person, they're like well you're just being rude. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something as well. That's a hurdle that we need to cross over. I like the term yeah, that you use, light, light racism. I think that if we had to use that a lot, way more people would be super, like they would feel so convicted if they're like, oh, Canada is not racist. We're, I'm lightly racist. Like that's just <laughs> such a gross term, but it's so accurate and I love it. Mm-hmm. I think it's fantastic. I'm gonna start using it. Um, <laughs> but, I think like what you're saying, like code switching in Canada, probably all over the world, honestly, is I think part of what adds to the fact that Canada, like Canadians just don't seem racist because they're like, oh yeah, I have, I have a black friend or I work with, I work with the black person. They're delightful. Half the time that black person is code switching so that we're palatable <laughs> in the workplace. So you, you just tone stuff down so that whoever you're working with, I won't name, I won't do any fake names, um, will like you and will, will accept you into their community, will introduce you to their family kind of thing, but they won't accept you for who you fully are. And be, I mean, like I, there's probably some onus on me too, for the fact that I will, I will just tone a lot of things down. I, I, I dress nicely. I'll speak clearly. I won't use too much slang. I'll tone down my swearing kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I'll talk sports, you know, <laughs> I'll do what the masses want. Um, and then but then I'll still, I'll still feel like, oh, like I don't feel fully understood unless I'm, I'm at home or I'm with my family. Um, so I feel like there's part owner, like there's some level of responsibility that we have to just call people out that are being lightly racist and to not, I try to tone down my, my code switching as, as much as possible or to just be aware when I'm doing it and to try to avoid situations that are gonna make me have to code switch to to change my tone of voice when you're talking on the phone like my I will go like 400 octaves up it's insane just to get to get through to someone um but yeah I think the and the other thing is that like like Jeremy like you're talking about we're oh we're not as racist as either like Canada we're just not racist or like at least it's not as bad as what it's like and in the States and I feel like that logic is talking about racism as if it's not a spectrum. Like it's not, you're either not racist or you are racist. You can be lightly racist or you can be hardcore racist. Like there is, there's a spectrum and it's either <clears throat> maybe in Canada, we've all agreed that overt racism isn't okay. Maybe not everyone. Most people have agreed overt racism isn't okay, but there's still so many forms of covert racism that like forces us to to do these things like code switching and it's the covert racism that leads to this iceberg of 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 black hurt and 
and anger and misunderstood being misunderstood it's the covertness it's small comments like oh you're well spoken for a black person oh you're not ghetto oh you grew up in a nice neighborhood kind of thing oh you speak you're pretty for a black girl kind of thing like those small comments that might seem like compliments from the weird people who say it but it's not <laughs> that's just covert racism that's just you trying to hide it under a compliment so that you can't be called out but you should be called out yeah, I, I, this is where some of our language gets really important that we don't talk like in Canada, we don't like racist. We talk about racial prejudice or something like that. And mm -hmm. just the shift that's happening culturally in language where these things are getting named for what they are, regardless of what anybody thinks about the intensity, I think becomes really important because language ends up shaping mm -hmm. the way we perceive the world. And so naming things for what they really are, not these sort of nicer, more polite terms for it, I think becomes really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd love to uh, pull Gabe in mm -hmm. on this part of the conversation in terms of allyship and uh, his work in social justice and racism. I mean, I know that's really broad, but Gabe, what's kind of uh, moving around in your mind right now? Thank you. Um, you know, when I decided that, or the wheels started turning where I realized that I really needed to be an ally. I had to confront a lot of the stereotypes um, that I had about other minorities and even Asians. Um, and I had to actually start to deconstruct um, some of the aspects of my faith that sort of said like, well, you know, God rewards good behavior. So if people are good and do and behave and do the things that they're supposed to do, then they will be blessed. And, you know, their life will reflect that materially in all, in all these other ways. Um, and <clears throat> I think for Asians, we often think that we're outside of all this, as I mentioned, when we're actually right in the middle um, because White supremacy casts us as this model minority, the peaceful high achievers that are wedged right between uh, whites and other minorities. So it can be said like, well, why can't you be like that, more like them? Look what you could be if you just worked harder. Um, and the insidiousness of racism, white supremacy is, 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 is that we don't even realize a lot of times that we've come to think of race as this zero sum game where some have to lose in order for other people to win, which is of course contrary. I realized over time um, to every teaching of Jesus that I knew. And what I realized is that a lot of the economic and well, because people taught me, um, a lot of the economic and social mobility uh, that Asians have is because as was mentioned, um, Canada has an economy that was built on slave and exploitive labor of black people and other people. My father was a civil engineer. The income that my family enjoyed that helped pay for my law school came from land that was taken from indigenous people. So I don't get to claim those benefits without lifting up and standing with descendants of those people who are still suffering. Um, you know, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, we are one body. And if one part suffers, 
the rest suffer with it. So we're, we are in this together. Um, and one of the big reasons for that is, is, is that ultimately white supremacy doesn't even benefit white people. All yeah. it does is rob people of connection and the gifts that people of color have in leadership, uh, invention, art. And so it's actually in my self-interest to be anti-racist, to remove barriers to keep people from flourishing the way that God intended. Because if we really are all made in the image of Christ, then having a society where everyone's equal, where that image is flourishing in everyone is one where everybody wins. Mm -hmm. um, and what I dis discovered over time, um, well, sorry, I just rewind a second. So I, I, I'm a lawyer at a nonprofit here in Calgary. So we serve people that are marginalized, uh, low income. I take a lot of the homeless clients, but kind of uh, across the board. And I, I went into that job very wholeheartedly but with a lot of privilege as a cisgender, male, upper middle class. And as I started to listen to my clients' stories about um, how they were stigmatized, attacked, harassed, neglected because of their gender, their family origin, their mental and physical health, um, I started to see the intersectionality of the work that we did whenever someone has an issue with getting access to justice, there's always a social condition underlying it. And you can't solve that legal issue without the addressing systemic issues in their life like poverty and racial discrimination. Um, so I, I feel very fortunate to be able to engage in this work, but it, it became pretty obvious quickly that there was no way to compartmentalize those things race is here, justice is here. They're all woven together constantly. Thank you so much, Gabe. Does anybody wanna jump in on anything that Gabe has mentioned, talked about? Super helpful. Nailed it. <laughs> all right, A plus plus, thank you, Gabe. Yeah, so helpful. Uh, I want to move to Larissa here. One of the things that she mentioned that seemed really important and sort of top of mind and heavy of heart for her was the uh, the intersection of identifying as a female and as a racial minority. So Larissa, uh, do you want to speak to that? Give some language to, to what feels important to you about that? Yeah. Um. <laughs> There's, yeah, there, I feel like this hasn't been recognized a ton that there is, um, that's like a heavy burden to hold mm -hmm. to be a minority of a minority. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I understand that these protests, all this unrest started because of, of George Floyd. And I mean, it was, it was recorded, everybody was able to, see it or able to share it on social media but I mean the week before there was there is a woman who is Brianna Taylor who is shot in her house innocently and there is a few headlines yeah but I mean there wasn't nearly as much outrage about it as there should have been um and 
I think that in a lot of a lot of black culture, you you your women are forced to choose either between their womanhood or their blackness. Like there's not they're not too it's not just one thing. Like you either have to be against like Black Lives Matter or you have to be a, like a freaking feminist or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the violence that happens against black women i mean like black women are four times more likely to be murdered by their partners compared to their white counterparts um and that spills over into the fact that like these these murders this domestic violence is happening in in black or poor neighborhoods where there isn't a heavy people don't care like it's it's happening and they're like oh well maybe she was out of line maybe or there's a language that that people will use in black culture where it's like oh like this this is like you're struggling for your love it's struggle kind of love like you have to stand by your man kind of thing um which is complete bullshit if Mm -hmm. you're being beat up by anybody you have to like that's not okay um and yeah, and I think that that's just not another thing that I was I was thinking about when I was when I was sending this to you. There's like um, was the R. Kelly documentary that came out a year ago, um, but a lot of times I think that just like black women either present themselves as more mature or they're just they lose their innocence so much earlier than than like a cute little pigtailed white girl would. They 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 look older, they're going to be treated older. Um, and black men get away with more with them because this just it, it's embedded in in the culture. Um so I think that that's just like it's it's a more like subtle or in, invisible form of racism because it's in the black community so it's kind of like left up to black people to deal with um and it's it's not being dealt with um and it's not being spoken about and it's it's just it's not fair um but yeah that's i think that's the biggest thing is that you just have to either have to choose between being only black or you have to choose between being only woman and this the compounded injustices in both cases is insane um and it it's veiled as different things it's veiled as either you're you're a strong black woman for for sticking by your man throughout all the stuff you're you're a strong black woman for raising four kids on your own. Like that's mm. not you're not a strong black woman. You're strong, yes. But mm. that's not that shouldn't be a source of pride. It should be something that should be spoken about on talks. Um yeah, that was that was one thing that I, I wanted to to mention because I don't think that just harder to see mm. for people. Yeah, I, I mean, I could definitely speak to that. Um, there's something to be said for knowing, not just being, 
being and knowing that you are at the bottom of the totem pole in every category that you are in. In, when it comes to being black as a woman, the considerations, it's like men slash children, women. <laughs> the expectations of women in the black community are enormous. Um, and it, it's a combination of a value system within the black community, but also expectations that have been imposed by the immense racism um, that the community has experienced. So I think it's hard to, when you take the socialization of women, of a lot of young girls to be obliging and to be obedient, and you apply that to black women, the demand of the role that they then have to play in the movement for their people is one of complete and utter sacrifice. And that is an extremely difficult burden to bear without the same level of fight that you see for men. Black Lives Matter was created by three queer women. The civil rights movement was powered by a legion of forgotten black women. And it's devastating to have, to make the sacrifices, but not to get the same amount of fight, to have your name erased from protests that you lead, <laughs> you know? Um, and then on the women's side, when you're in a space as a black woman, even as a feminist, knowing that your considerations are bottom for the movement like they do not they are an afterthought the needs the specific needs of black women are an afterthought in the in the feminist movement and having to deal with that while being perceived and applauded I, I think this is something that black people go through in general but I think the women one is so specific you are afforded you are viewed with this kind of odd superhero lens. <laughs> it's like the strong black woman thing. Like you're viewed with this very strange superhero lens and that means that people expect you to bear a lot of things, but you're never given the same level of respect. And to a certain degree, even the same level of fear that a superhero would be afforded. No one is afraid to cross you in the same way. No one is afraid to be problematic towards you in the same way but they're just like look at this super this person who stands by her man stands by the community raises raises these kids it's it's an enormous burden that lacks a lot of frameworks of support and that's this is the macro not to talk about like the micro of what little black girls go through every single day existing in the world, being taught to hate themselves, having their physical appearances co-opted by beauty brands, placed on other races and told they look beautiful there. It's, there's a million levels of challenge and not enough space to cry about it. 
because you're not allowed to be weak. Um, and so I, that really resonates. Like I feel that, that, but like that challenge, that additional layer of struggle without the same amount of support for sure. Thank you, Mita. Uh, chair. Huh? <laughs> um, I don't even want to just like move us, you know, too quickly away from all of those things that you've said, but. Uh, so just on a, <laughs> a note of time, we would, you know, typically uh, wrap things up after about an hour. Uh, we were open to carrying on the conversation a little bit longer, but I actually really want to leave that with you guys. Like how, how you're feeling? Are you feeling like, oh, I am tired. <laughs> like I, I'm happy to like, you know, tap out of this then you know, that's what we'll, that's what we'll do. But if you want to uh, continue to chat for, you know, another 15 minutes or so, um, you tell us. Huh? I can that's hang. a lot of pressure now for everyone <laughs> on that. <laughs> I can hang. I don't have any plans. I cleared up my right. walls. Yeah, same. I have nothing going on. <laughs> okay, you're happy to be here. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're all we're all okay to carry on for a little yeah, longer. Okay, great. Um, I mean, really, like, uh, uh, there is an, another specific thing that I want to bring up with Gabriel, but before I go into like a theme that he had named, you know, is there any kind of direction that uh, that you, Dave, want to really take us in for a bit? Uh, No, not this time. I think okay. as the conversation goes, that would be something that I'll, that I'll click into. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. So um, so here's where I want to bring Gabe in a little bit more. Uh, Gabe, Gabe, you've done some really careful thinking around police brutality. Uh, now we, I mean, I want to be really careful here. Like we have... You know, we have cops in our community. Um, we know that they signed up to protect people and to serve their communities. And still, you know, there's a conversation to be had around police violence and aggressive use of force and like what is up with the system. Um, so it would be really great to have you, Gabe, kind of walk us, you know, kind of towards those themes. And again, of course, Dave, Larissa, Mita, like, jump in wherever you'd like. Well, thank you. Um, I want to start by making it clear that this is not a binary choice between supporting police mm -hmm. or supporting minorities and civil rights. We can mm -hmm. do both. Um, and, and I mean, honestly, like Calgary police and others have, have a lot of good examples of that. But we have to 
demand accountability in the highest ethical standards um, so that we don't uh, lose lives and that people aren't brutalized. Um, it's not, as we've said, it is not just when a life is lost that we have cause for concern or reflection. Um, however, people, I think, are right when they have said that um, the, the deaths of George Floyd and Philando Castro and, and so many others um, were um, a racial issue, but they're also a police aggression issue. Across North America, police are being increasingly militarized. There is a cultural problem within the norms of policing, in my opinion, because we have this greater emphasis on militarization, on force, and a culture of bullying and silence um, in many. And so this is not to say that the whole culture is toxic, but there are toxic aspects of those cultures. And when you think about it, it's not a surprise when the new recruits, the, the freshest of them, get exposed to horrible trauma mm -hmm. day in and day out, constantly. And the expectation is that they just absorb it, push it down and or release it back with aggression and violence to control crime and to control what they uh, see as the sources of crime, which often end up being brown and black bodies and in, in Canada, indigenous bodies. Um, and so this isn't saying that any one person is going out there with malicious intent, but it's a combination of these, these things coming together that make it easy for um, minorities, but particularly uh, black, brown and red people to be profiled, to be subject to greater force. And when, as a result of that, um, to become more traumatized, more likely to commit crimes. And then from there, we often see people becoming labeled, stigmatized. They're saddled with a criminal record. Most people can't bounce back from that in terms of employment and then their economic standing, all of that. And it's just a cycle that we see, unfortunately, all the time in the criminal justice system. And we're making strides towards that. In Calgary, we launched our Indigenous court last fall. It's, uh, it's the only one in the mm -hmm. province. And we are doing incredible work with providing healing, culturally appropriate services to people that are going through, um, who choose to go through that court process if they want to get in touch with their culture. Um, Calgary has recognized some of the best community policing in North America. Um, our diversity units do remarkable work engaging with the uh, different kinds of communities, including Black and Caribbean community, the Indigenous community, vulnerable persons and people with mental health issues. And that is a really powerful form of policing where they engage with the community. They work with and support people that might otherwise be at risk of being victims and or 
um, getting involved in crime. And I've seen it work to really help people who otherwise would get tangled up a lot with criminal charges, tickets, all kind of child welfare, all kinds of other things, They're, see their lives get transformed. And so we can do that. We've already been doing things like that. And what I, I think we really need to demand and to keep working towards is changing the culture of policing in a positive way. Um, so there's a, a law professor, Christy Lopez, who recently published an article on the Washington Post, which talks about a type of, of training in which police learn and are expected to and empowered to intervene when they see other officers engaging in things like racial profiling, aggression. And so it's countercultural because usually the expectation is that, you know, they're, they're all together on something like that. They have to have each other's backs, even if there's something that's more questionable. Um, and so it's something that unfortunately can reward violent, um, uh, unethical policing and burn out all but the most resilient ethical officers. And so when we can change the culture so that people, the expectation is that you will intervene if you see your superiors or your peers engaging in conduct that is not ethical policing, then we allow ethical police to flourish and we start to weed out or at least you know, retrain the ones that are not policing in an ethical way. Um, so it, it's complicated. There's no easy answer to that, but these are things that we can uh, uh, ask and demand um, that actually supports police to be able to do their job the way that they signed up for. Um, because most of them get into it for the right reasons and they want to work with integrity. And this is a way that we can empower them to do that. I, I feel like I've been waiting all day to hear Gabe kind of walk us through <laughs> what feels like can be kind of a bit of a minefield right now. So mm -hmm. thank you, Gabe, so much for that. Uh, Larissa, Dave, Mita, do you want to jump in on any any of that? Oh, did you want to? <laughs> do, do, you, do you want to jump in, Mina? Do you, do you have anything you want to oh, throw into the mix here? <laughs> yeah, I have those. Um, I am extremely concerned on a global level at what policing even means. Mm. I have been to many places all over the world. There is not a single country in the world, including my own home nation of Nigeria, where I feel like the systems of policing 
are resistant enough to the societal issues to be effective enough for the people. In every nation, the police reflects the societal issues of that country. So in Canada, when we see that in Toronto, if you look at pe what people pay in their city taxes, the percentage of it that goes to police, and you look at the outcomes in interactions between black people and the police in Toronto, it makes, it begs the question of why do black people regularly have to pay taxes into systems that are not for them? By force, we have to pay these taxes and these systems aren't taking these funds and saying, oh, let's make sure that we bolster our multiculturalism budget so that these societal ills aren't penetrating into what we're doing. Alberta cut its multicultural, multicultural, multiculturalism program budget at the end of last year. Hate crimes were going up and they still did that. So this idea that we're gonna create this unique body of individuals that are gonna be so ethical that, they, that the societal issues will never penetrate them in the way they do their jobs is a problematic belief that we all need to be very, 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 very careful about. I have personal issues. I've lived in the US, I've lived in Nigeria. I have, I've lived in the UK. I have my own personal trust issues with police. Regardless of how great a many individual I know who are cops are, I have my personal concerns with the trust level and a lot of that comes from this the feeling that if you're not willing to look racism and its biases adequately in the eye, why would I call you into a situation where you're going to overestimate the risk of a person? Black, the, the, I think one of the signs I carried at the protest was something that a man called Baratunde Thurston had said, and I kind of added some words into it because I work in communications and that's what I do. <laughs> um, but it was, we're tired of bearing the invisible burden of your irrational fears. And a lot of white people are afraid of a lot of black people without explanation. A lot of white people assume that black people are stronger than they are. Why were four people on top of George Floyd? Why? Is he Zeus? Is he the Hulk? Who requires four people to restrain them? No one. And for as long as you have even the slightest twist in your mind that can make you make that calculation, it's a scary thought to me to bring you into a situation, in a situation, to a situation where someone might be just speeding or a situation where someone might be, you know, spending a $20 forged bill, like, the idea that we're gonna get these great people and they're just gonna be great because they're good and they have good intentions. If you're not willing to put the money to change the systems, if you're not willing to accept the history in the US, the police literally started as slave chasers. They have been chasing black people since they began. How do you undo the psychology of entering into a space like that. Also, how do you undo the psychology of ent entering into an organization that in many countries functions in a 
cult-like fashion, the very thing that they condemn in criminals, that secrecy, that if you turn against one person in the group, then you're ousted. Those are things that are mob-like, that are condemned in criminals, but are heralded in a lot of policing cultures globally. And because there is anti-Black sentiment globally, again, I've lived in many countries, experienced many brands, because there is that sentiment on a global scale, the idea that it will not manifest itself in, in situations where people are given weapons of warfare, I just really struggle with that. To me, it seems like a kumbaya universe. I'm, I'm ready, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but I have a very low degree of hope when we're still struggling to get Canadians on a basic level to accept that they are racist. <laughs> like I struggle with that. So uh, that's uh, my opinion. Dave and Larissa, do you want to jump in? In terms of policing, I can only really speak to my own experience. Um, in Calgary, again, as I said earlier, just being born and raised Calgarian, I have had some like numerous run-ins with police that are somewhat questionable and I think are definitely due to my skin color. One in particular, when I was in high school, I was at the bus loop in Beddington, for those of you North Centralers. So I was on 72nd Ave and um, I was standing there after, after school, me and two other Black friends. And there was always a police car station there. And we're just standing, waiting for the bus, like all two, 300 other people. And then the lights went on, like the, the police lights and the sirens. So we look and this hand from the passenger window just goes like this. We go over. He's like, hey. I'm like, hi. He's like, you fit the description of attempted murderer in the city. I need to see your ID. So I show my ID to him, me and my other two friends. And he's like, well, it's obviously not you guys. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. But again, that, act of carding someone doesn't lead you to feel safe because you feel like your presence and the space you take up is a threat to someone else. And that's challenging, especially as like a 15 year old boy. Um, there's other circumstances like that. And I can tell you with certainty that my experiences that I'm just sharing with you isn't just limited to me and it's not a one-off. Yeah, I feel like I've had that that same conversation um, with my mom growing up. Um, I remember her telling us, like, she would tell both my sister and I, she's like, you have to be careful of the situations that you get yourself in because you're very easily identifiable in a, in a group of five white girls. <laughs> like, she's like, if you do anything bad, they will automatically pin it on you this is just the reality of life and like having to take that on as a kid and just be like okay yes this is this is the thing this is the world that I live in um same thing with my stepbrothers I remember the countless conversations that we've had that we've had um telling them to be they live in the states uh telling them to be safe telling them to not get involved um if things start to escalate to immediately leave because they will be the first victim of any sort of injustice of, of any sort of injustice like this is just a reality and it's ridiculous that, that the responsibility is on 
a 16 year old boy or a 10 year old girl to police themselves from the police um, and to just keep on going on with that in there for their whole lives. Like that's just, it's, you know, it's difficult to think about. Um, but another thing that in Bobby, you, in your sermon two weeks ago, you're talking about domestic, about domestic violence and you're like, what do these men think about themselves and what do they think about other people? And this struck me. So I was like, I, you know, I don't, I don't see it that way. Like I, I, I didn't see it that way until then. It wasn't like, oh, do they think about themselves? I was just like, these are terrible monsters who want to, to who want to hurt their, their partners. Um, but I feel like that's a, a good question to ask for a lot of police officers before they go out into the world. What do they think about themselves? Because if they're battling all of these, these ego and pride issues and they see the world as a hierarchy and they see race as a hierarchy, then they're going to, they're going to treat people based off of how they see themselves. Um, and I mean, you can't, it's probably not gonna be like counseling services for every single cop that enters the force, but I feel like that's a helpful question to ask cops. Mm. <laughs> what do you, how do you see yourself mm. in the world? And how do you relate to other people? Because that's, that's how you're going to treat people once you're, out, once you're out there. Gabe, are you jumping back? Pardon? Go ahead, Gabe. Uh, yeah. I, I do want to echo what has been said. A, a well-intentioned police officer is useless if they're not anti-racist. That's, that's, it's, it is as simple as that, as it's been said, the militarization of police is a huge issue that cannot be separated from any of this. If it isn't addressed, then all of what is, um, is going to continue um, to be an issue. And as was sort of, um, mentioned as well, like, we also can't treat police like customer service for light-skinned rich people. And that is another cultural problem. And the, we see that in the way that police respond to things that are referred to as social disorder calls. So when it's expected that police will be deployed even when somebody is, you know, um, playing their music too loud or something like that. Then we are going to continue to have all of the problems that were just mentioned. So it, it's fair to say what I described earlier as being kind of a kumbaya thing. Unless all of this comes together, it is a very fair comment. Um, and so we have to demand a lot if we expect there to be any change, any meaningful change. Well, thank you so much, Gabe, for kind of bringing us back um, with that. It's Don't interesting. You? Last week, I just think 
was such a stark reminder of exactly what we're talking about. You have this woman um, who calls the police because a black man asked her to put her dog on the leash. And she says, a black man is threatening my life. Mm -hmm. And then a black man is killed for a nonviolent crime. But it's what Mead is talking about, that narrative mm -hmm. of a black man being a threat in an unrelated story in New York is this larger cultural narrative that ends up with you know, Mr. Floyd being pinned to the ground in the way that he is because now he's a threat. And the ways that we speak, the ways that we use this language. Um, yeah. Yeah. Connecting the dots for us. Um, so we're going to wrap it up in about um, just under 10 minutes. We do have a question in the live chat here on YouTube, uh, but here's, Here's what I'm mindful of. It's a question around education and how to talk to children uh, around um, sort of what they're witnessing and picking up on. I'm mindful that, you know, besides the education that you provide for us all, <laughs> all the time, that maybe most of you wouldn't call yourselves educators. Uh, and it reminds me of a moment when Tennessee Coates was being asked like all these really big questions. And he was like, look, I'm a writer. <laughs> like, like I can't solve all, all, I can't answer all your questions. So I don't want to ignore the question, but I also want to be really mindful that like, we don't have a teacher on our panel. So I'm not expecting you to, you know, speak to that directly unless you want to, <laughs> you know, it's really up to you. But the question was about, you know, ways to speak to children, um, children in classrooms, you know, even, you know, learning at home right now, but um, in the care of their teachers uh, who are obviously, particularly black children who are obviously really upset. Mm -hmm. do, do, Dave, Larissa, Mita, do you want to step into that? How do you feel about it? Uh, yeah, I can, I can try. Um, okay. I was struggling <laughs> with this too on mm -hmm. Sunday on how to talk about it um, in my youth group in a sensitive way. Um, I think it was some of the kids didn't really know what was happening. So it was mostly just like a conversation about like facts of what is happening and just like letting them know this is why people are protesting. This is what happened on Tuesday night or whatever. Um, but I think that the most important thing is obviously to talk about it. Um, if we're going to, kids are a lot more <laughs> mature um, and intuitive and empathetic um, and smart than you might give them credit for a lot of the times and they can hold these conversations and they can digest it. You don't have to <laughs> terrify them and tell them that cops are terrible people and everybody's a racist in the States. Um, but there it's obviously, it's really important to have that conversation because the black kids, like most of the color kids in your class are having these conversations at home out of necessity uh in the same way that um like that i mentioned before where you're just like your mom's telling you to to be careful with who you're around because you're you're gonna be singled out um so if black and color kids are having this conversation at home regardless then there should be conversations being held in class too um and i think that a, a really helpful way um, 
to get these points across to kids is like having them like in a lived experience. So explaining to them what privilege looks like and also without singling out only the black kids in the class, it's also helpful to show them to highlight everybody's differences and to do like some kind of exercise where it's like, okay, how would you feel if uh, all of the kids who are wearing glasses in class, like you had to sit in this part of the classroom and you could only write on a single sheet of paper and you didn't get lunch today uh, and like work through that and how they would feel, maybe act it out. I feel like that's a really helpful way to do it because that stuff sticks with kids and they can see themselves in these people's um, in people's positions who are being racially profiled in the world. Um, and, you know, if there are black kids in your, in your class, uh, you know, obviously don't be like, Hey, approach it with a bit of sensitivity, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, Hey, how are you doing with everything with all the black lives matter stuff? Like they're obviously really aware of it and um, they're talking about it at home. It's the only conversation probably that's being talked about. Um, but just being a listening ear is really helpful. Asking them if they want to talk about it in class, um, asking them uh, how, they would, how they would like to be represented in class, how they would like their point to come across in class and giving them a voice because as you mentioned, there's not a lot of representation of in the media about these black lives or black black voices being um, listened to, and them being the educators. So, but I think that above all, it's a, it's a conversation that needs to happen because it's it's going to happen at some point, and it's better to have it happen when they're young. Um, and when they're less beat down by the world, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Just to add on to Larissa's point, I really want to stress one thing that I think parents and educators can do. Give your kids less stuff to unlearn. <laughs> do not teach them weird narratives about Christopher Columbus or <laughs> colonialism. Give them fewer things to unlearn because that is the truth. Start them off with the truth Mm -hmm. because they will build healthier opinions than waking up. There's like a whole current viral TikTok trend of people realizing shock horror, how like horrifically racist their parents are. And that's like genuinely like, oh my goodness, my parents think George Floyd deserved this. Like at 17, if you were told the truth about how the world came to be the way it was, mm. you wouldn't have to question your friends facing prejudice about their experiences. You would believe them. You wouldn't have to learn to believe them. And so I think to me, it's like just fits in perfectly with Larissa's point that kids are more intuitive, more understanding than we give them credit for. You don't necessarily have to tell them stuff the way you would tell an adult, but you have to, we have been giving kids lies for so long. Mm -hmm. Black kids have to learn to like themselves. 
because they get an education of lies about who they are and what they can accomplish and where they stand in society. And we have to like, I started liking myself like three years ago. <laughs> imagine, if I, imagine if I grew up liking myself and what I would give to the world that way. You know, so I think in general, like, if you want to educate, just stop from the true thing. <laughs> Don't make up a weird story that makes it more palatable. You can find a way to make things more digestible, but just educate with the truth to start, mm. even when the truth is difficult. Yeah, just being cognizant on time, I'll just say really quickly, um, just coincidentally, um, I only started liking myself three or four years ago as well. Um, because I was always taught that I was wrong. So recognizing later on in life that, you know, I matter and I'm an okay person. That's something that, that unfortunately black people learn in their adulthood. Um, just quickly though, in terms of teaching, I can't necessarily speak to teaching or what's, what's the appropriate method or what's the right method. I'd suggest though, just when you're having these conversations uh, and you're dressing it with sensitivity and you're approaching your students in your class, or if that's your own children, just have a level of regularity to it, whether that's once every month, once every few months, once every few weeks. The reason why I say this is, is just you don't want to have these conversations when there's mass protests in the United States, because again, this is a lived reality for black people every day, not necessarily when there's a person who's murdered by police or another civil unrest-like situation. I, I love what Dave's saying there. And our family has so much to figure out on this one. I have a Vietnamese son and I have an indigenous daughter and we're trying to figure out how to have these conversations with our family. And the one thing that we have settled on is the same thing we did with adoption, which was to talk about it regularly and talk about it openly. And so we talked about adoption long before my son ever understood what this was. But the hope was that when he started to put it together, which he is now at five and six, it wasn't a surprise to him. And now we're having these conversations about race. We're having conversations about his sister who's indigenous and what that means. And those things won't mean anything yet, but if we keep doing them, we keep exposing him to them and we keep doing our best, even though we're gonna mess up some of these conversations along the way, our hope is as he stumbles his way into it, um, it'll be less of that shock. Uh, but man, we are, We've got a lot to learn. And then, I mean, even these conversations are helpful tonight. Mm. Um, not so much give me the answer or tell me what to do, but just hearing these things mm. help because it becomes part of our vocabulary. It becomes mm. part of the way we see the world, the way we speak about the world, and then the ways we speak to our son and our daughter. I just love you guys so much. <laughs> I delight in you and I love you and I cannot like say enough thank yous for lending your time, your energy, even your exhaustion uh, to us and to our community. Uh, typically, you know, uh, in After Party, we've tried to end whatever we've been talking about just to still end with a little bit of gratitude. Mm -hmm. uh, so it would be lovely, you know, to carry on that After Party tradition with our panelists and hear, you know, just something that comes to mind for you in terms of gratitude. I'd love to hear that. And I oh, think one yeah. of the really neat things this week has been we're seeing Black Lives Matter everywhere, mm. but remembering like Black joy matters, <laughs> like Black lives, Black dreams, Black mm. goals, like all of these things um, are really important because those are the things 
I think that anyone that I would love to hear what people are excited <laughs> about and grateful for this week in the midst of all this. Uh, yeah. So let's, let's start with, uh, let's start with you, Mita. Oh, I'm grateful. So grateful to be black. It's the best experience ever, even in the worst times. It's the funniest thing. We went from like crying about someone dying to like laughing about Madonna's son dancing in a video to making like we just like every day being black is we get there's a lot of pain for sure but man the joy the togetherness what it means when we gather what it means when we worship together the cultures the banter like it just doesn't I it's the best thing it's the best it makes me happy every day I love it (laughs) <laughs> oh so good higher of it it's I, I love it it's the best so that's my gratitude <laughs> if you haven't seen Mita's live stream music performances uh, I don't know if she has one coming up but check those out they are a blast oh they are gosh, so much fun so just to sit on the edge and watch <laughs> so good my crazy t- <laughs> so great Dave Who's let's up? Dave let's hear from you what, what are you feeling grat- gratitude for I'm feeling gratitude for my blackness as well. Um, I'm also feeling gratitude for my family. Uh, just a lot of gratitude for my family. Um, my mom's side of the family is from the Caribbean. Um, very, very strong black pride that I'm so grateful to have in myself as well. And I'm also really grateful for my nephews just to know and just to hope that they'll have a world that's better than the one we have today. Oh, so good. Um, Gabe, let's hear from you, and then we're going to wrap it up with Larissa. I've been extremely grateful to witness the resilience of my Black friends, even in times like this, and for their vulnerability, including all the panelists. Um, We haven't earned, in a lot of cases, um, hearing these stories, but they have done it anyway. And um, yeah, and I, I do have deep gratitude for that. And I, I've been glad when, you know, my black friends have called some of us out for not, um, for, for falling short and not being uh, good allies and, and teaching us that way and demanding more, so. Mm. Thanks, Gabe. Larissa. Mm. Uh, I too am feeling very grateful for my culture, my blackness, and my family. I it worked out so well. I was at down to my cousin's house for dinner yesterday with my dad, and it felt there. I don't. It's so great. They're the sweetest people. I freaking love my family. Exactly what you're saying. You know, we can go from like talking about all these things happening in our lives, all these injustices, and like immediately switch to just making fun of each other in the most unique and creative way. Um, I'm thankful for my sister who is, um, she's the saltiest person I've literally ever met in my life. And it's so fun talking to her about these things just in an unfiltered way it feels good it just feels nice talking about it in an unfiltered way I'm really grateful for um the staff team that I'm on uh for 
this entire conversation that happened and took place. Um, it's overwhelming. I think it'll hit me in a, in a few minutes after I log off of this. Um, you know, I was really thankful for my friends. My best friend's been sitting beside me this entire conversation. What? <laughs> oh, no. Put it on camera. These ways, I literally have to every single point that I make that she agrees with. She does a silent clap. <laughs> you had so a live audience this whole time? <laughs> okay, now everyone has to turn their camera and show us that you are a live audience somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah thankful for really good friends that I have in my life, too. Oh, man, that's good. That's great. Oh, that's good. Well, listen, we are really thankful for each of you uh, and for this conversation. Yeah. And uh, I know that uh, there's, there's very little we could do to, to repay you for this. We do have a gift for each of you. We'll mail it out this week to say thank you for your time and um, the energy and just the vulnerability that you put into this tonight. But thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, as a human being, uh, I'm grateful. As a pastor, your pastor, I'm grateful. As a dad, who has to navigate this stuff with both of my kids um, as they grow. I am so thankful for these types of conversations and, and each of you in the community that uh, teach me and shape me and, and help me be a better, a better parent and a better dad and a better person. So thanks, Bobby. I just love you. <laughs> just feel so grateful. And I am, yeah, you, you, you like bust open our hearts tonight. Mm -hmm. So thank you. We love you. And we'll uh, sign off. And thank you to everyone who's been oh, watching tonight. Gosh, really right. appreciate you taking your time <laughs> right. and um, you know being open to these conversations. It, yeah. it means a lot. So yeah. thanks, everyone. We will see you 